And I think part of it has to do with how the issue has been framed. I think the concern on the part of, um, of gun owners is the notion of taking guns away from uh, regular folks that own guns, whereas most of the policies that um, we focus on looking at in this, this study and that indeed are being looked at in legislatures have more to do with keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous individuals. That's really the area that's gaining traction in terms of public policy. This is Colin Barry. She is a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her paper from this month's issue of AJPH describes surprising findings about agreement on gun violence prevention policies in the American public. Her work sheds a new light on the terms of the debate about gun violence prevention. There is lots of agreement among Americans about what should be done, but the debate, for some reason that we will discuss, has been almost entirely focused on the issues on which there is the least likelihood of consensus. Today's podcast, corresponding to the July issue of AJPH, therefore asks the following questions. If there are realistic goals that could slash gun violence, what can be done by gun violence researchers and by gun owners to reduce the burden of deaths and disability caused by gun violence in this country? How can both sides of the controversy be brought to find a common ground and start a constructive dialogue. Yeah. So, Colleen, um, so this podcast is about gun violence prevention and, uh, and you have this... Uh, a survey, you know, which results you published in uh, the July issue of the journal um, about the support uh, that Americans give to a specific policy. So how much support exists among Americans for specific gun violence policies? Well, our results suggest quite a bit. Uh, over the last five years, our research team at Johns Hopkins has been looking closely at this question, and we've repeatedly surveyed representative samples of the U.S. public and have consistently found high levels of support for regulatory policies aimed at reducing gun violence. In this study, which we conducted in 2017, we looked at 24 different policies and found majority support for 23 of the 24. So, uh, why are people so emotional about gun violence prevention when they agree on so many policies? So I think um, part of the issue is that the levels of agreement across uh, the American public aren't well understood. Um, the uh, media and public discourse over guns uh, is very uh, divisive right now in our country. And indeed, there are some real differences in the way people think about guns. But when it comes to gun policy uh, and specific strategies for trying to reduce 
gun violence, uh, there is actually quite a bit of agreement, I think more agreement than is generally understood. So give me an example of a popular policy which would, uh, you know, meet the uh, the agreement of gun owners and non-gun owners. So one policy would require a person who can legally carry a concealed gun to pass a test demonstrating safe and lawful use. Support for this policy ranges from about 83% to 87% among gun owners, non-gun owners, Republicans, and Democrats. Um, importantly, support was basically the same among respondents living in states with minimal to no restrictions on concealed gun carrying by civilian so-called right-to-carry states and among respondents in states that have more restrictive concealed carry laws. So this signals gun safety is an important area where both gun owners and non-gun owners can come together. Um, many gun owners in the U.S. are very aware of and knowledgeable about gun safety and supportive of policies like this one to encourage the safe handling of guns. Uh, to the extent that we dwell so much on the deep divide over guns in public discourse, uh, I think it sometimes obscures the fact that there are policies like this. Um, and there are many other examples where gun owners and non-gun owners agree. And so, Colleen, give me an example, uh, uh, an opposite example, a, a policy on which they would disagree. Absolutely. I think it's it's also very important to acknowledge that there are a number of areas where we just see very big divides among gun owners and non-gun owner, gun owners. In fact, each of the 24 policies we looked at had greater than a 10 percentage point gap uh, be in support between gun owners and non-gun owners. And those policies are going to be more of an uphill battle. So, for example, uh, banning the sale of large capacity magazines, banning the sale of semi-automatic uh, assault weapons, um, other policies related to prohibitions of individuals under 21 from having guns. Um, all of those policies are um, quite divisive. And, and one last question, Colleen. Uh, did you ask the question about uh, whether uh, people supported the idea of arming teachers in classrooms? Uh, we we didn't ask that question. We asked a related question, which is support for allowing a person to to carry a concealed gun onto school grounds for uh, kindergarten through twelfth grade, and we found uh, fairly low. We found very low levels of support among, uh, in particular, non gun owners. Only nineteen percent of non gun owners supported this policy, but even among gun owners. Uh, fewer than a majority supported that policy, only 43%. Our job in science is centrally to produce the science, produce the evidence, produce the data, but I think secondarily, but not uh, inconsequentially, to also make an effort to make sure that the science does enter into the public conversation uh, as a way of helping shift the values to align with what we find in the science. Sandro Galea is dean at the School of Public Health at Boston University. He has been instrumental in rallying the field of public health to stimulate the emergence of a new generation of gun violence researchers. 
and publication statistics about articles related to gun violence indicate that he may well have succeeded in his endeavor. With him, we discussed the role of gun violence researchers, why it has skipped a generation, and how a new generation can help build the foundations for sound gun policies. You qualify the situation of gun violence, you know, in the country as uh, hyper-endemic, right? I mean, and the stats are indeed uh, mind-boggling. So would you mind reminding our listener a little bit what are the stats of gun violence in, in the United States? Well, there are about thirty-four to 36,000 people a year who die from um, gun violence in the United States. And that number is generally well known. What is typically not understood is that for every person who dies, there are about two people who are shot by a gun and um, who live. And uh, being shot by a gun and living means, a, in many cases, a lifetime of injury and disability. So those numbers translate to about almost 100 people who die from a gunshot every day and about another 200 people who are shot by a gun and are injured. These numbers have been roughly the same since 2000, so for about 18 years, although there has been an uptick in uh, gun homicides in the past two years. So, so this is really impressive and frightening. And how much of this situation is due to the lack of uh, gun violence prevention research? Well, the, the, the challenge with not having gun, gun violence prevention research is that we collectively don't have the data to inform policy action and decisions. So in many respects, we have an enormous amount of uh, heat on the issue right now, but not, not that much light. The, the, um, when Jay Dickey sponsored the Dickey, what became known as the Dickey Amendment in 1996, uh, which uh, was an amendment to a um, uh, omnibus spending bill, and uh, the, the Dickey Amendment was, uh, when you look at its wording, had really nothing to do with research. It was about uh, not uh, allowing the Centers for Disease Control to advocate for uh, what at the time was called gun control. But it ended up having the effect of chilling funding for uh, gun violence research. And over time, the number of papers, uh, number of researchers involved in the area dwindled. And uh, Jay Dickey himself, before he passed away, recognized that uh, that had been, had, had, terrible unintended consequences from his perspective, because what it did was it shut off the pipeline of research that could provide data that could help uh, people on, let's say, both sides of the argument make informed decisions. So research ultimately in our society serves the purpose, as it should, of providing us the data, the information, the raw material uh, on which we then make decisions. And we have not had that in uh, gun violence research for the past 15 to 20 years, despite and with the only exception to that being an uptick relatively recently. So, so we have evidence that uh, the DK amendment actually shut off gun violence prevention research. Well, uh, the, um, there, there have been a number of papers that have been published now that, that show that uh, the um, soon after DK amendment uh, funding for uh, Injury prevention in general at the Centers for Disease Control went down quite a bit. Uh, and in particular, most of that uh, uh, funding for injury prevention was uh, became vertical targeted funding, meaning funding for very particular aspects of injury, which means that the CDC could not use it uh, 
uh, to um, for other priorities that it felt were important, like gun violence. So after that, um, the um, Dickey Amendment was interpreted more broadly by other federal agencies, and funding for gun violence research slowed to a trickle. And over time, the number of papers published uh, around gun violence uh, got uh, fewer and fewer, and uh, certainly uh, it was uh, nowhere near commensurate to the size of the books. So our job as scientists, I think, is to produce knowledge so that uh, we have the knowledge to act. But I also don't think that we can ignore the values. I, I think uh, part, in, in part what uh, you're doing with this podcast is, to my mind, making an effort to translate the science. So it's not simply uh, papers on a page in an academic journal. You're translating science. And translating the science gives one an opportunity to inject the scientific conversation into the broader national conversation, which, of course, results in shifting values. So, yes, you're right that there is a lot of uh, sound and fury. There are a lot of uh, opinions and perspectives, and there's a lot of uh, anger uh, and defensiveness on this issue. But that is true of any polarizing social issue. Homes overall in the United States with children, one out of five of those homes store their guns loaded and unlocked. That means five million children in the United States are living in homes where guns are stored in the worst possible way, loaded and unlocked. Matthew Miller is a professor at Northeastern University in Boston. I spoke to Matt about interesting findings he and his colleagues recently found about the differences between recent and old gun owners. In the latest study, the one we're publishing in this issue by yes. AJPH, uh, you were able to separate young and old gun owner, right? What we were able to do is to identify for the first time sort of who were current gun owners who at some point within the past five years did not live in a home with a gun but had since acquired um, new firearms and compared them to everyone else, to people who had been living in homes with guns for, or current gun owners who had been living in homes for, for a long time. So for some reason that we were unable to, uh, to, to identify new gun owners, even after you adjust for the fact that they have children in their home and that, and that they're more liberal and that they are younger, they were still uh, about twice as uh, likely to, uh, to, to, to store guns safely compared with longstanding gun owners. But so, Matt, there, there are two options here. Either mm -hmm. these is a, this is a new generation of gun owners, mm -hmm. and so we're going in the good direction, or these are young gun owners who are going to grow old and to adopt the habits of the uh, long-standing gun owners. So, what do you think? Well, I think you've, you you hit you hit it on the head, Alfredo. We we, we don't know because this is a cross-sectional study, and uh, given that uh, there are no long-term longitudinal studies of gun owners, we we just don't know the answer to that to that question. Yes, but on the other hand, you say they are more liberal. And so, yes. so, 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 so what do you mean? You, you seem to be in agreement with uh, Phil Ox. Do you know Phil Ox? The, no. the, the, the folk singer? 
He had this song, "Love Me, Love Me, I'm a Liberal." Okay, no, I don't know. <laughs> his, Do his last verse, he said, he was saying, you know, something like, "Once I was young and impulsive, you know, I was a uh -huh. liberal, but now I've grown older and wiser, etc." Mm. So, do you think these guys mm. are more liberal now, but are going to grow old as more conservative? Um, I imagine that they will grow old and sort of age politically the way the way most people do. I, I, I don't have any reason to believe that they're that they would that they would uh, contradict the lo the, the logic of, of this folk song. I wore every conceivable pin, even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. Matt has a recommendation to gun owners, which he believes, and he actually can support with evidence, would immediately prevent many of the suicides and other gun-related deaths among children. That if you have kids in your home, you store your guns in a way that they can't get to them. I mean, we don't have to wait for uh, legislation to happen in order to do something that potentially could avert some of these sort of mass public shootings by minors and at the same time would have an enormous impact on the number of children who die by suicide, the number of children who die every year by firearm accidents, and indirectly the number of young people who die by homicide in as much as 350 to 500,000 guns are stolen every year from private homes and storing guns in a way that unauthorized users can't get to them could also sort of affect the guns that are potentially getting into uh, the inner city and causing, uh, uh, causing homicides as well. Mm -hmm. I think that there really are so many middle ground solutions to many of our problems that would dramatically reduce the gun injury and death in this country that really wouldn't infringe on people's Second Amendment rights. But unfortunately, in this political climate, it's not like it's not like there's room for even even lifting the federal ban on on doing the research in the first place. Jonathan Metzl is a professor at Vanderbilt University, Nashville, Tennessee. He's arguing that public health researchers need to be more effective in communicating with the public that science is not a gun control tool, but can actually evaluate the beliefs emitted by both sides of the controversy. Okay, I'm taking your word. I mean, the, the country is polarized now, and it's polarized on the basis of beliefs, not uh, evidence. Is it because we lack scientific evidence to go in one direction or the other in terms of policy that there is such a polarization? Well, the piece that I, the short piece that I have in the in the journal coming up, really argues that it's not just about knowledge. I mean, certainly that's the case, um, but I think the issue is that there's been this this basically this federal 
this ban on um, on federally funded research on guns for the past 25 or 30 years. And part of what that's done is pushed people into two very divergent camps. Um, on one hand, the kind of pro-gun crowd has been led to believe that any research any research at all is going to lead toward trying to take away people's guns. And so it's kind of anti, anti-research, anti-science. Um, and on the other hand, I think that this ban has pushed gun researchers uh, into really needing to prove really basic, basic <laughs> principles, like the fact that there are more shootings when there are more guns. I mean, it's hard to imagine how there would be more shootings if there were fewer guns, right? And so in a way, there are these polarizing positions that, that really, I, I guess what, what I, the point I make in the piece is that I really feel like we don't just need to do research on guns because it's no big mystery that having more guns leads to more shootings. It's also we need to do research on how can we bridge this divide and make it easier for people to talk across this, this vast chasm that seems to be engulfing us all. Yeah, I mean, but how can we do that? Because uh, if I follow you, if we had more evidence, it doesn't mean that people would be ready to sit together and and examine the evidence and get to some compromise or some uh, common uh, grounds for policy. Well, unfortunately, I I, I do agree. I, I do agree with that. That um, in a way, I think many of the of the of the most basic things. You know, if if somebody is at risk for suicide, they shouldn't have a, a gun in the house. If, um, you know, background checks are effective. I mean, many of the basic principles of, of gun violence prevention have been proved time and again. So I, I don't think this is necessarily a question of a knowledge vacuum per se. Um, I also think it's incumbent on the research community to better understand what guns mean to different communities. What's the history of guns? What are, what do guns mean? Why do people hold on to guns? Because I, and the reason I say that is because I think we've fallen into this trap of saying, well, the NRA is saying we're anti-research and so we're going to show the value of research, but it, it almost plays into their hands in a particular way. Um, because without understanding the meaning, the meaning of guns, which I think is really something that needs to be done, all the research in the world is not going to, is not going to make a dent. And the other factor I think that's important is that the NRA has been very powerful in constructing the meaning of firearms. Um, and, it, and it's something that researchers really need to take account of. What, what are those meanings and how can you talk to people about them? The message coming out of this podcast is fascinating. Even for me, who have been doing all the interviews and was not expecting this result to start with. There is a large consensus in the population about most of the policies that can prevent gun-related deaths and disabilities. But this consensus is invisible because the debate has been currently polarized by the rare issues on which there is major disagreement, like taking guns away from responsible owners. This explains the passionate discussion based on emotions and beliefs, but not on science. To change the situation, we need to reframe the discussion towards possible consensuses, both researchers and gun owners can contribute. 
We need more science, but also more communication, more understanding of the issues at stake, and good dissemination of knowledge. Overall, we need a better public health dialogue. That's it. Thank you for listening. And I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for his comment on the draft of this podcast. The music was composed by Francis Jacob, as usual. And this is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. And you can listen to more podcasts, including older podcasts in English, in Chinese and Spanish. Visit us at AJPH.org, our website, or subscribe on the podcast app on your phone or your tablet. Our next podcast will be on institutional racism. See you then.